0: Before any of us will even think of asking for help, we first must know that we need help, that we are in trouble. I think about the lifeguards at the beach. I thank God for them. There was one time in my early teens where we were way beyond those buoys out there at the beach and just having a great time past the waves. And I remember hearing lifeguards yelling at us to come back. We didn't know we were in trouble, but they knew it because they were experienced. They had the knowledge and they warn you when you're too far out and you have to come back in. We don't only see the trouble, but they see the trouble. We realize it only after it's revealed to us. We don't just sit there and think, man, this dude is crazy. He has no idea what he's talking about. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. We don't do it in those instances, but with our spirituality, many people do that very thing. This person doesn't know what they're talking about. Leave me alone. I want to live my life how I want to live it. We listen to these people because they're trained. They have authority. And when he or she as a lifeguard warns us, we have come into conflict with something that we didn't previously know. There's trouble. There's danger and we have; to, it has to be revealed to us. There's this famous lighthouse off the coast of France, the La Jument lighthouse. You guys have seen it. It's a very famous picture. It has this lighthouse keeper standing there with this big crashing wave coming over it. And many times you see it hanging in an office or something. that says courage, and it has all these things listed as to what courage is, and You see this guy and the picture shows him like, I'm calm, I'm cool, I'm collected. But it's a real picture and that's not what actually was happening. You see, that lighthouse keeper was standing there. and You could read the story for yourself. His name was Theodore Jean. And he and others were waiting for rescue because the waves that were crashing began to crack the concrete. And it crashed through a window, crashed through a door. So all the furniture in there was moving around in the water, and they were actually afraid. He's not standing there cool, calm, and collected. The way that picture was shot is the photographer was flying in the helicopter just to get some pictures that day of the waves crashing on it. He didn't realize what was going on inside. As they were waiting for rescue, he happened to get there before the rescue helicopter and take pictures. And Theodore thought it was the rescue helicopter, which is why he was standing at the door. And he was waiting to be rescued. He was afraid. He even says so in his story. See, there was a realization that he needed help and that they needed to be rescued. They needed to be saved. But they didn't realize that until the waves came into conflict with this 154-foot concrete tower. They crashed against it, and that crashing caused... And awakening and it's the same for us mor- morally and spiritually to know our need for salvation we must first come into conflict with sin we must fr- first realize and conclude that we are sinners by nature not sinners because we sin sin because we are sinners and we tend to as Christians being saved tend to deal with only the sin but not the root of it. We look for those things in somebody else's life to point them out, to try to tell them, look at what you're doing is wrong and you need saved by Christ, which is true. But we have to go farther than that and let them know why those things are happening in their lives. We begin to see here a progression of sin happening in these verses. Many people, me, maybe even you, have gone into emergency uh, emergency surgery. I did. I went into emergency surgery. First time it ever happened. Crazy thing. Had my gallbladder removed. Very painful. And as I'm in the hospital, moaning and groaning, because I thought to myself, "This is painful. I want this out." And I went louder and louder so that they would pay attention to me, and they did, and it worked. But when the doctor came in, do you think he came in and started chewing me out? Started saying things like, hey, Larry, I know you're in a lot of pain. I know you're going through this pain. But hey, look, that's a result of the way that you've been eating all your life. And, you know, this is what happens. You think he just sat there telling me all of these things? No, he's diagnose the problem he's not treating the results he's treating and removing the source of the issue but we do that to people we go to them and we say man you're living see what happens when you live like that that's exactly what happens but you know what it's true paul he's gonna lay it out for us he's gonna take every argument and he's gonna pull it apart and it is true we do reap what we sow but he goes deeper than that. Many times we deal with the results of sin rather than the root of the sin. And what's the root of the sin? Universal sin. That's the sin we have to come into conflict with before anything else can take place. Do you remember when the Lord spoke to you, those of us who are born again Christians, you knew something was missing. It could be that nothing was even wrong in your life. Everything was going okay. Like for me in my early teens, I thought life was good. It was going great. And then I had my friend Manuel come and visit who accepted Christ. And I thought to myself, man, if that guy can get saved, anybody can get saved. And I knew something was missing in my life. It was revealed to me in conscience, revealed to me in nature. I knew there was a higher mind behind all of this, which we all have. And I knew at that moment I had come into conflict with sin. And when I accepted Christ, it wasn't this falling on the floor and crying and weeping. It was just the fact that I knew I needed the Lord. And I said, Lord, I'm ready. Now, after that went through many things, of course, as we do many times, but we have to come into conflict with that original sin that's outlined for us in the uh, Old Testament in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve. This was the fall of the human race because the first human couple sinned. In Romans 5 verse 12... Paul is dealing with this truth as we will eventually go to. And he says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And when people tell you, well, man is inherently good and progressing to goodness, the proof is right here in Paul's own words. The evidence of sin in the world is death. Because death is the consequence of sin. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 8: Life in the Garden of Eden, perfection, beautiful. It starts here, verse 8, and says, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one uh, which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Therefore sin enters the world at that point. Something beautiful became degraded. Depravity. Depravity infects everyone. This is what the Bible teaches. Look at what the psalmist wrote. In Psalm 51 verse 5, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Scripture diagnoses sin as a universal deformity of human nature found at every point in every person. The wisest king that ever lived knew this aside from jesus solomon in first kings eight forty six, his prayer of dedication to the temple he himself says for there is no one who does not sin everyone is born into it first john 1 8 through 10 says if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. As you turn back to Romans chapter one, I want to read you something from the book, concise theology. It says this moral deformity is dynamic. Sin stands revealed as an energy of irrational negative, and rebellious reaction to God's call and command, a spirit of fighting God in order to play God. The root of sin is pride and enmity against God. The spirit seen in Adam's first transgression and sinful acts always has behind them thoughts, motives, and desires that one way or another express the willful opposition of the fallen heart to God's claims on our lives. Sin at its root must be dealt with first. And there has to be illumination. There has to be that that, what, uh, that what's taking place. It's a working of the Holy Spirit. It's that tugging on your heart saying, there's something up, there's something missing. And you know it. And as we begin here, he's going to reveal these things to us. This is why the Apostle Paul had to solidify the standing of the born again Christian. Those of us who have accepted Christ into our lives. This is why he spent the time telling us you're justified. Why? Because as we dig deep, we're going to go dark in through chapter three, verse 20, as we travel this Roman road, the initial chapters, are the most treacherous, the most rocky. And we have to have solid footing before we can move on. And if we don't have this solid footing, these waves of scripture can begin to overtake us if we don't know the truth. But that's what it's supposed to point out to the believer. And these scriptures are also to point out to the non-believer that there is a need here. And it does go dark, and it goes dark for a while. And that's where the conflict comes in. We have to get to that place of conflict. Original sin, universal sin, is what is being dealt with here. Paul, the apostle, us today, who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're like that lifeguard who has been given that authority, who is trained to see things we don't always to cry out to others, to call them back to shore. When we hear the call is when we have come into conflict with this issue. And with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, He begins to be the answer to the life that we're all looking for because we're all built with this desire for the Lord, whether we think we are or not. And people misunderstand us a lot of times when we are railing at maybe the wrong things. The other day we're driving and this gentleman in the car next to us has this picture or has this printed page taped to his window, the inside of his window. And it says, all Bible thumpers can kiss my... And then just add that. Why would you put that on your car? Taped up. Where somebody's little kids can read that. I mean, the depravity of the mind, the person sitting in the car, the guy sitting in the car, probably thinking to himself, yeah, you know, this is my attitude. Not thinking about anybody else, but himself, that he just doesn't want to be bothered. And here's the thing. We understand that they don't want to be bothered. But we see things that he doesn't spiritually. It's our desire that He would come to that illumination. And sometimes the Lord will tell us that's enough. I'm abandoning them. Man, that's scary. We're going to talk about that as the Apostle Paul will begin to show us here. Let's read these verses. Starting at verse 18 in chapter 1, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image make, made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit evil-mindedness, they are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. We have a very positive message today for everybody. What Paul is doing here in this section is showing the declension of mankind, a life that gives unhindered access to Satan and sin. When we come to Christ, it is hindered. Yes, we may sin. Yes, we may fail, but the Holy Spirit will convict and he will correct, and he will rebuke, and he will keep us. But if we don't know Christ, Satan has unhindered access to our lives, and we begin to decline, it results in depravity. This section does not teach evolution like the world does. That man starts low and then climbs high. But devolution, he started high and because of sin sank lower than the beasts." That's what Warren Wiersbe writes. So we're gonna see the wrath of God, the suppression of God and declension of mankind because when you suppress God, there's progression in sin. The suppression of God leads to progression in sin. And we see it right here in that he gives them up to uncleanness then he gives them up to vile passions, then he gives them over to a debased mind. Man is not inherently good because the world would continue to become progressively and systematically better, but it's not going that way as we've already proved. Death entered in because of sin and there's proof that there is sin in the world. The Bible tells us the the life moves upward for the righteous but that's not what's happening. Things are getting worse. They're getting better for us who know Christ because we're coming to that time when we'll be out of here. But our desire is to take everybody that we can with us. And it's not seen that way all the time. What it's seen as is, you just want me to live a miserable life. You don't want me to have fun. No, we want you to spend eternity in heaven. The Lord will show you what fun you can have here. That's between you and him. I don't care about that. I care about your relationship with him. Deal with that first. I don't care about the other stuff. I want you to know Christ. He'll clean all the rest up as he uh, sees fit in his own time. So we've all already established that God is fair and God is just in our previous messages in this chapter. Therefore, his wrath is also fair and also just. His wrath is perfect in its quality and justified towards its object. Wrath, when it says wrath here, it's not the word that we probably think it means here. And if we don't acknowledge, if we don't understand this part, we can misinterpret this whole section. Because there are two basic words in the Greek used to express anger. There's thumas, which is where we get thermometer or thermos. And that's red hot, uncontrollable outbursts of anger. Like what we do. That's us. But there's the orge, coming from the verb orago, meaning to swell or to grow. It's a fixed, controlled Anger. I like what John MacArthur said. He said, This is not an impulsive outburst of anger aimed capriciously at people whom God does not like. It is the settled, determined response of a righteous God against sin. So he's not out there all hot and angry about everything saying, I'm going to take you out, smite you, these outbursts. That's what we think about when we read about wrath. If it was this red-hot anger, then would He be the God of long-suffering and patience? No, 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the God we serve, desiring everyone to come to repentance. R. Kent Hughes writes, The wrath of God does not portray a deity who flies off the handle and indiscriminately thumps anybody who happens to be at hand. Like, hey man, I'm angry with you, (laughs) you knucklehead. God's wrath is perfect as to its quality and object. That is the general concept we must keep in mind as we go through our passage So coming into conflict with our sin and understanding God's wrath is justified, is intended to bring us to the knowledge of him, to bring us to reverence to him, to keep us from eternal damnation in hell. That's what it's all about. Because Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And that's not the way he wants us to go. He wants us to go in the way he describes in verse 27 of Proverbs 14, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. And that's what we're dealing with here. We move on. Verse 18 again. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They knew God, but they didn't know Him personally. Through His Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, God's fixed and controlled judgment is coming on all the unrighteous. And what makes you unrighteous? What I do on the weekend, that's a result of depravity, sure. But what makes us unrighteous is not accepting Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's the difference. That's where we get the justification in our lives. And it's coming this wrath on them justly because of their suppression of the truth the holding down of the truth that there is a God in heaven and there's no excuse because it's something that's manifested both in us and revealed to us by nature itself. There's no excuse, especially when you sit in a church week after week and you hear about what the Lord is doing. You are piling up judgment and judgment upon yourself. If you do not accept Christ. See, we discuss God's righteousness. It's imputed to us through Jesus Christ. The unrighteous is just that those who stand in judgment without a savior. We all stand in judgment with a savior or without a savior. It is to those who has been revealed, yet is suppressed, is what he's talking about. God reveals his wrath indirectly with the consequences of violating his moral law and directly by his intervention with the flood, with fire and brimstone, they're consequential. They happen because we didn't follow what the Lord has directed us to do. And here in this section is what is called the wrath of abandonment, removing restraint. Well, I thought you said, God will never leave me nor forsake me. Yeah, you've been made righteous in Jesus Christ. But if you suppress him, if you push him away, this is wrath of abandonment. And it's a decline in moral status. And you go down and down and down. And the Lord begins to remove his restraint from your life. And he begins to turn you over. What is being suppressed is revelation of creation and revelation of conscience. You're suppressing what you know to be true, that there is a God, that there is a higher being in charge of all of this, that we're not random acts of chance. This supercomputer and the way the body functions, how could that be random? The way the earth functions, the way everything happens, how could it be random? a random act of chance. No, we know based upon these things, these evidences that there is someone higher, but we suppress it. Why do we suppress it? Because we want to live the way we want to live. We see revelations of creation all over the Bible. Paul, the apostle describing to Lystra in idolatry, he says in Acts 14, 15, and 17, We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness nature, and conscience. God is not a created being. He is the, create, the creator. Proverbs 8, 29 says, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its li- limit, so that the waters would not transgress against his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth. All over the place, God created, God did it. Look what he did. Isaiah 48, 12 uh, through 13 says, I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. In Psalm 19.1, it says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. We see it, we know it. There's revelation of creation all around us, but there's also revelation of conscience. It's sovereignly planted evidence inside each one of us as we will get into in Romans chapter two. In Ecclesiastes 3.11 It says he has put eternity into man's heart. There's intimations, there's hints. We know something's missing. Yet we try to fill it with everything else so that we don't have to deal with what we know to be true. We bury our heads in the sands many times. And naturally, as a human being, we realize there's a possibility of this shoreless ocean of time in the future which we don't understand, we don't know. But if I could just shove it aside and not be concerned about it or worry about it, I don't have to deal with it. Not everyone wants to deal with it. And so what do we do? We suppress it. We suppress it. We live how we want. And what's being said here is there's no excuse when you shove shove aside the truth. You must come into conflict with it and you must deal with it there's significant evidence in the things that were made. And what he's talking about here is suppression is active. It's constant. It carries the idea of holding something down. Much like a story I heard about this little boy who brought his dog into his room to spend the night and he wasn't supposed to. And when his parents came in, he put the dog in his toy box and he sat on the lid and he tried to talk to his parents while ignoring the repeated thumps of his poor pet. It was continual pushing down or suppression and it's continual and aggressive striving against truth. That's the picture. I'm holding it down. If I don't see it, if I don't think about it, it can't really be there, but we know it to be true. In the things that are made, in the things that are made, H.A. Ironside says about that, verse. One word in the original is rendered by four words in English. Things that are made is poema. And from this, we get our word poem. Creation is God's great epic poem. Every part fitted together like the lines and verses of a majestic hymn. In Ephesians 2.10, we find the same word again. We are his workmanship, his poem created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And this is God's greatest poem, the epic of redemption. The epic work of redemption through Christ and what he did on the cross. As we read on in verse 22, it says, professing to be wise, they become fools and they change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In this suppression of truth, it's easily exchanged for a lie. If I could shove the truth down, I'll accept anything else that comes my way. Humans in an attempt to rationalize sin, we begin to create our own philosophies. We begin to make up what we believe about God and eternity and sin. And we begin to make those things up because we know there's a truth out there, but we don't want to look to the source. We want to look to ourselves and that's the replacement. That's the idol. Self, if I can't live how I want and be right with God, I just don't want to be right with God. He'll, you know, grain on a curb for me. Well, if he's just, he won't. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Psalm 53.1 says the very same thing. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. The word fool there, the word fool here is the word for moron. You're a moron. Man, that that doesn't sound good. I don't want to be a moron, but see, we think we're wise because we think we know better. Man is said to be constituted. In other words, we have to be part of something. We want to be part of something. And whatever that something is, is what we are going to serve. And if you don't serve the one true God, you're going to serve something else in your life. And if we don't serve God, we've digressed. Because we started with God but now we're going to idols. Historians report that many ancient cultures did not originally have idols. For example, Persia, Rome, Greece, and Egypt had no idolatry at their founding. The 4th century AD historian Eusebius reported that the old civilizations had no idols. They began with monotheism, one God, and ended up with multiple gods made in their own form. They didn't go from idols to God, progressively better. They went from God to idols, progressively worse. This is where we're headed. And we begin when we do, when we make idols. We begin to make God out to be like ourselves, as the psalmist points out in Psalm fifty twenty one. You thought that I was altogether like you, God was saying. Tertullian, who's that third century Christian author in the Roman providence, wrote many pages that reveal vividly the practical difficulties which were at every turn confronting Christians in the ancient world. He says, why even the streets and marketplaces, he writes, the baths and taverns and our very dwelling places are not altogether free from idols. Satan and his angels have filled the whole world. Even in Greek art, it's written by E.M. Blakelock, who said, the beauty of Greek art could not conceal the fact that the lovely statues of Apollo, Zeus, and Athene were only Greeks as the Greeks saw themselves. As the Greeks saw themselves in their moments of self-exaltation, while the myths and legends which surrounded them told of sensuality, cruelty, and pride. Just think of the superhero movies we have today. They look a lot like us. They have these superpowers. We want to be like them. What about a caricature? Have you ever been to a theme park and had something drawn of you? And they ask you, well, what setting do you want to be in? And what do you typically do? Well, I'm lifting weights, or I have my shirt off and I'm muscle, or you have a bikini and a little body, but we never tell them things like, well, make me sitting on the couch with my belly hanging out, eating chips and having a soda, right? We want them to look a certain way. My God needs to look a certain way, how I think he should look. And we bring them down to make them like we think he should make them. Why? Because it's easier. Because then I can change my sin and I can say, well, my God will forgive me and I can go to heaven and live my life how I want and I never have to deal with what the real issue is. Idols are the result of the human self-willed misreading of evidence God clearly reveals. They are the perversion in the human quest for truth. So I cannot understand God, so I'll create my own. This is the result of suppressing God of what we know to be true. Suppression of God leads to progression of sin and the total declension of mankind. We see it. He continues in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burn in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Suppression of God leads to these types of things. A Chinese teacher once told a missionary that the Bible can't, cannot be so ancient a book after all, because the first chapter of Romans gives an account of Chinese conduct today. It is the same for our world. There's nothing new. We haven't progressed. This stuff was happening then in another digest uh, it said that paul was writing during the rule of nero when roman society had sunk in hideous vice we now have again on the stage nudity and open sexuality which scandalized the more sober writers of nero's day at about the same time as paul the roman satirist petronius wrote a piece of fiction which has partly survived. And it concerns the base doings of three Greeks in the seaports of Capania and his dark confirmation of all that Paul writes here. Anyone who seeks evidence and support of the apostles' grim description can read Petronius' Satir, uh, Satircon, Seneca's letters, Juvenal's satires, Sat, uh, Tacitus's historical works, and Suetonius' lives of the Caesars. Paul was writing to those who lived in Rome, some of them in Caesar's own household, who had all of this before their very eyes. He wasn't writing into the future. He was writing at that time. But knowing that these things would be progressing in the future. It's been said that no great nation has ever yet been destroyed by an enemy from outside, which has not already destroyed itself by corruption on the inside. We see it all over the place. Paul the Apostle is vividly describing sinful human behavior as a result of suppression of original sin. It's not an ancient scene, it's a contemporary scene. We can believe today we are so far advanced in our thinking from ancient times, but we're not. It's just a different setting. We're advanced in technology. We're advanced in everything else, but not in morality. We believe that we have this more contemporary lifestyle, but there's nothing new in these verses. It's just progressed and it's getting worse. This section right here has been called the toboggan sled of sin. The toboggan sled of sin, where it has been said that God gives up. Does God ever give up? God gives up. He gives them over. Wow, we don't want to believe that, but he does. When man abandons him, he abandons them, the unrighteous. I'm not talking about the verdict that's already been set on those of us in Christ. We've already dealt with that, which is why we had to deal with it first. Because if we go through this without that understanding, through chapter three, we're going to be sunk We already don't want to come to church on Sunday. We're definitely not going to want to come to church on Sunday if we keep that in mind. He abandons man when man abandons him. Judges 10.13 says, Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will deliver you no more. 2 Chronicles 15.2 He went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And in Acts 7, 41 and 42, And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. They became lower than the beast's. Doing depraved things. This is what suppression of God and his evidence, and his evidence leads to. Progression of sin. Proverbs 7:6 through 9 says, For at the window of my house I looked through my lattice and saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths a young man devoid of understanding, passing along the street near her corner, and he took the path to her house in the twilight. In the evening, in the black and dark night. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. Do you see the progression of the sin? He knew this young man, what he was doing. I picture this man in Proverbs as he looks throughout his window and he sees this young man doing this. And I always wonder, why doesn't it say that that man stepped out and say, young man, don't do it. Can that be us? I've gone down in the twilight. I've gone down in the evening. I've gone down in the black, dark night. I know where the where those roads lead. That's why we're here. That's why we're sharing those life cards. But like that twilight, like that evening, like that black, dark night in progression, there's three other steps that we see right here in these scriptures. Because God gives them up to uncleanness. He gives them up to vile passions. He gives them over to a debased mind. God giving them up and giving them over is another judicial term that we've talked about before. Like we were justified, but now he's giving them over. It's like lording over a prisoner to his sentence. He's giving them over to their sentence. You want to go that way? I've reached out to you. I've warned you. I've gave you evidence after evidence after evidence and there's an act of suppression. And so I'm going to begin to remove. This is abandonment. Uncleanness. When he gives them up to uncleanness, we already spoke about that. It speaks of decay. It's moral decay. And here the kind of decay that comes from sexual immorality. It goes from the heart through the body, demonstrated through the body, doing acts that you never thought you would ever be caught doing. Then he gives them over to vile passions. And here it's identified as homosexuality, a sin that's condemned throughout scripture. And we find it interesting that Paul mentions the women first before the men. And what's interesting about that is that Paul mentions the women first to show the extent of the debauchery under the wrath of abandonment because in most cultures, women are the last to be affected by moral collapse because they're usually the ones staying strong because they're thinking about all the things that need to be taken care of. It's like he's saying, look how far human beings have come because of suppression of sin of what you know to be true. And he gives them over to a debased mind. The Greek word meaning not passing the test. You don't pass the test. None of us want to be counted in that. It's used to describe worthless metals that are discarded because they contain too many impurities. Now, why do we as Christians think that we are pure? Because of all the good things that we do? No, because we're justified. I made right with God because I've accepted Christ into my life, not because of what I do. Well, then God must be cruel here that he would turn people over. No, he's not cruel. He's just, he's giving you what you're asking for, but he's pre- presented truth as well. James 1, 13 and 15 says, "'Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and entices. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. We see how far humankind will go in the depths of sin. This was Paul's point. Full-grown sin that brings death. These are the results of it. It's the results of universal sin that was never remedied. Or we're over here railing against the actions of the people who are unrighteous rather than talking to them about why the root, the root of it. It was never remedied. Because sin was never acknowledged. It never came into conflict because it's being suppressed. It's the complete and utter, utter denial of Jesus Christ. And that's when he begins to abandon, he begins to remove. It's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit when you deny what you know to be true. And in verse 32, Paul rounds everything off again that they know and that there will be no excuse. When you do know your sentence is sure when you don't accept christ they know but still they indulge in these sins push away the savior and approve those who practice the same thing it's an active denial of jesus christ and guess what there's nothing new here it's just becoming progressively worse and we know people must come into conflict with sin before they realize they need to be saved. But once we realize it, we have to accept it and not deny it. And many of us here have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's why when we read these verses, it should break our hearts. It should not cause us to look at others and say, look at how they live and they're terrible. It should break our hearts and we should desire To see them saved, we should have empathy for them. Put ourselves in their shoes and say, I was once like that. But if they continue to push away, there's nothing we can do. What can we do but pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal himself to them? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words, Lord. Thank you that we're justified. Thank you for the hope that we know that's within us those of us who are saved. But Lord, those who don't know you, it is our desire that they would accept you into their lives. And Father, we pray that they would. Lord, we we mean no trouble for anybody, Lord, that would make somebody put up a piece of paper in their window in a car. Our desire is only the best. But Lord, we have to realize not everybody is going to want that. We pray that suppression of truth would be done away with. Because your word says, Lord, that our prayers loosen strongholds, Father. Lord, you can do mighty things. And Lord, help us as things progressively get worse to take as many as we can with us, Lord, holding back those going to the slaughter. May we continue to warn, especially in the world that we're living in today, Father. There's nothing new. It's just getting worse. But Lord, our hope is in you. Thank you, Lord, for these words. Thank you, Father, for the um, desire, Lord, to see others come to know you. But Lord, may we not leave here hopeless. May we leave here encouraged, knowing that we have a way of escape. And it's through Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior that we might have joy in Him. We're to count it all joy in every situation. So, Lord, continue to work in our hearts. Thank you for solidifying our justification, those who are born again. But we pray for those, Lord, who don't know you, our friends, our families that we dearly love. We desire them to be right with you, Lord. So help us in our approach, God that we deal with the original sin. Not always with the results, not always condemning, but loving, but Lord, we have to tell the truth. We have to give us that boldness. As the apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed. I'm privileged to share this truth, no matter what the cost. We pray these things now in Jesus name. And we all said, Amen.